Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Working is supported by Delta Airlines, whose new Delta Studio provides all kinds of streaming entertainment in the sky, including movies and TV shows, all on your personal devices. Learn more at Delta.com. Delta, keep climbing. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Working, a podcast about what people do all day. I'm David Plotz. What's your name and what do you do? Uh, my name is John Flansburg, and I play guitar in the band They Might Be Giants. You play guitar, but you do more than just play guitar. You have many jobs. So what are your many jobs? Well, you know, um, we were talking before uh, the tape started rolling about the idea of branding and what, and what a loathsome term branding is. But in many ways, part of my job, a big part of my job, might be considered being like a brand manager of They Might Be Giants. You have a lot of jobs. You, you write songs, you record songs, you do commercial work, you do albums, and you tour. Yes. And so just to narrow this, let's just talk about touring. So why would you go on tour? Well, it's funny because um, you know, as the record business has been cratering, you often hear people saying, well, you can't make money selling records anymore, so you'll just have to tour. But just historically, rock music, you know, which kind of invented... Uh, a different level of touring. I mean, there, you know, in the 40s, you'd have classical pianists touring the country and playing, you know, matinees for the la- ladies of the town. But you know, rock touring, as we know it, really ha- was invented in the 70s as an extension of the major label business, and it was always about promotion. Nobody ever thought like doing a club tour of the United States is going to be a great way to make money. Doing a club tour of the United States is just a mistake you know it's an untenable bunch of demands on travel and um it's not scalable you know it's it's it people have always lost money on tour so we live in such a curious time that people are under the illusion that you can really make money on the road where in fact you can break even but it takes a lot of um you, you really have to rethink a lot of things about uh, what you're doing. I mean, there was a long time we, were, we would take semis out on the road, and we figured out a way to get it all in a trailer behind the tour bus. Why would you go do something which 
is going to take a lot of your time away from things where you might make money. So, what, so why do you go do it then? Oh, I mean, uh, the, the same original reason that people start touring, which is that it is an incredible promotion. So, I mean, you're just, you, you generate so much interest in what you're doing. I mean, part of it is fun. I mean, we are performers. It's like, it's actually just, you know, fun to have a reason to play six nights a week. If we could play six nights a week in New York, we'd probably be into that too. But uh, it's just a way to telegraph to the culture that you're behind your projects. So when last time you decided to tour, how did you decide here are the cities where we're going to go, here are the people we're going to bring, here are the venues we're going to go to? Do you make those decisions or does someone else decide that for you? I mean, all bands' experiences are singular. And I think They Might Be Giants as a band has been very lucky in that we've never had that moment where the world has just like tapped us on the shoulder and said, like, thanks, guys, but you've got to stop now. We've been very lucky in that we've managed to find an audience quite continuously and hold on to an audience and had we've had a very loyal audience that seems to be interested in our most unreasonable notions and that is um that's very rare even in a a, a culty band a lot of bands have crazy ideas people embrace those crazy ideas and then they want you to sort of stick to that in terms of organizing tours this last year, we did. We spent all of 2014 on the road, basically. We went out, I guess, in, in March and came back in the end of November, early December, and did many, many shows, 100, 100 and something shows over the course of the year. And we went to some pretty far-flung places. And I think um, some, you know, we played in Tasmania, which is not exactly a, 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 pro- a big profit center for touring rock bands. To just get yourself to Tasmania is kind of a, a dopey idea. But... What was nice about it is that I get to say I went to Tasmania. You know, I got to see Tasmania, which was interesting. It just made the whole experience of touring more vivid, going to more faraway places. Do you have rituals, or maybe not rituals, but habits that you engage in on a show day? What's the run of the day for you? Well, I'm, uh, it's a really physical show for me, so it's, it's really exhausting. And uh, I guess about man, a few years back, I kind of gave up on trying to be a tourist as well as being a performer, which was very liberating for me. Um, I mean, I'm kind of jealous of my bandmates who have who are more physically fit and have the ability to go see like the the great museum in the city that we're in. Um, but I've just sort of given into committing myself to the my performance and to the show. I've always written the set list for the band, and so I'm kind of always on the, a lot of mornings. I'm kind of thinking back of the night before and trying to figure out how to make the show be more exciting for the audience, to be more exciting for us as performers, like kind of flip things around, you know, introducing, you know, introducing different repertoire, old, song, old songs that we haven't done in a while, different kinds of stage things. There's a theatrical element to, to our presentation that um, it requires that we re-examine what we're doing constantly because... We're not such good performers that um, the sort of improv stuff will come across as funny or in, or fresh if it's not actually fresh to us. As a performer, you know everything is everything is faking it, and on some level, you know it's not like you know it's, it is a performance. It's like all the lights are pointed to you. You've got a microphone. Like you're, the world is saying they're going to pay attention to you. It is important that you deliver something worth paying attention to. And so I'm kind of thinking about that a lot of the day. Um, I don't have, there are not too many rituals. It's not like we all like, you know, have a prayer circle before we go on. I do have some superstitions. I actually, oftentimes we'll go back to the hotel between sound check, or go out to dinner, but between sound check and the show. And coming back to, to the venue, if, if we come back around the front of the venue, 
if there is not at least a person standing in front of the venue, I feel like I, I feel like uh, it's very unlucky. And and that it's the the person standing in front of the venue is the symbol of there being too many people inside to hold everyone who wants to be inside. And it's not really based on anything, but I'm I'm it it, uh, it has often made me very nervous to go by the venue and not see people outside. Couldn't it be just everyone is so excited to be in the theater? They're like, I can't I can't wait out here. I need to be up there. I need to get as close to the stage as possible. That would that would be what a reasonable mind would probably move towards. Also, you know, people being outside probably just means you're further down south and people want to smoke. So you do a sound check, you go to dinner, you come back yes. and get ready for the show. What is involved in that getting ready or after 25 years you don't really have to do anything? One thing that is great is that um, after 25 years of touring, we don't really get nervous the way we used to get nervous. I mean, it wasn't stage fright exactly, but um, I think we really felt like we didn't quite know how to do the, the job that we had carved out for ourselves. Um, now, I think we actually are, even, even when the, the shows are really strange, you know, and, and there are all sorts of different curveballs that get thrown at you, um, I feel like we actually have a really big repertoire of how to deal with problems. Um, one problem that we often have uh, is um, the venue. It's a sit-down venue, sit-down show. We don't really do a sit-down show. We can't help that we've been booked. A lot of the larger theaters are, are have seat. They might have an open dance floor area, but you know they have comfortable seats, and it's like usually for like more adult kind of sophisticated shows and our show is just like a big rowdy celebratory dancey kind of show and over the years i've i've kind of become accustomed to this thing of just coming out on stage with our drummer marty beller like raising a lot of noise on the drums and i'll just like demand that everyone stand up and come to the front and you know i just i'm in circus barker mode and or like hype man mode, and it's. I'm sure when people see that, they just go, "Oh, it's that kind of show, fine." He, and they probably think like, "Oh, he's that kind of guy." But it really took me like many years to sort of get over myself enough to feel confident that that would even like if you try if you try that and it doesn't work, that's going to be pretty shitty. What song are there? Songs you play at every show? We probably play "Birdhouse in Your Soul" at every show because that was like the only thing sort of like a chart hit. We've played Don't Let's Start at many shows. We've played, um, we've probably played Istanbul, not Constantinople, at every show. Um, and we've done many different versions of it. And I have to say, I'm sort of proud of the fact that we've done, we've managed to reinterpret the song a number of ways that all are worthwhile. Because I think one of the hardest things about, you know, being a band that's played a song many, many times, probably, you know, technically too many times, is the reinterpretations come across as really second rate. There's a song uh, also from the Flood album called Particle Man that's a huge audience favorite. And it's also really popular with kids' audiences or parents. I mean, it just gets a big response whenever we do it. And the truth is, it's probably the only song that we've done so many times that we just just don't even know how to approach it. Okay, let's go to this. Because I think every person who's ever been to a rock show, their favorite band, you have the kind of... You know, I can't get no satisfaction problem, which is you look at Mick Jagger performing, you're like, he has played this song for 50 years. Every show, he's got to play it. He's got to bring energy to it. So with Birdhouse and Your Soul, your audience is waiting. They want that ecstatic chorus. They want to sing along with it. How do you 
bring that energy night after night after night and not get bored with it. I have very few things in common with Mick Jagger, but I think uh, you could probably even cut and paste his response into to mine, which is um, it's the energy of the actual audience response. We wouldn't we wouldn't do it if it wasn't for the audience's interest in having us perform it. But it is really exciting when the audience sort of when you start playing a song that is universally recognized by your audience as like the the thing. And uh, when we start playing Bird Ass in Your Soul, people lose their minds. And that is very exciting. And, and, you know, I mean, and if that doesn't work for you as a performer, I, I really think you, one should probably find a different line of work. When you're on stage and you're performing, obviously you have an audience which is making noise. Can you see them generally? Or the, are the lights too bright? It really depends. Um, when we do kids' shows, we actually have to bring the house lights up because it's... Um, because kids get scared of the dark after a certain amount of time. And we do a lot of in-stores where you're actually, we'll be playing at like a Barnes & Noble or something uh, and really doing a show, but in, in kind of in broad daylight. And um, the truth is those shows, it's, it's, it's much harder because, you're, because psychologically you're just taking it all in. Like you, every time you look around, all of a sudden you just realize there are all these different people. It would be strange to not feel self-conscious seeing that many faces. This is a really stupid question because I'm not a rock musician, but how do you protect your ears in a show like this? Well, I'm 54 now, and I realize now that I actually am get, I have a little bit of tinnitus in my, my left ear, and it's, it's bugging me that it's happening, but it, it seems like it's probably inevitable. For people who don't know what tinnitus is, it's, it's sort of a... Some musicians refer to it as the invisible choir. And uh, basically, it's like a ringing in your ear that will not stop. And uh, I've, tried to, I've tried wearing earplugs to protect myself against incidental things that would trigger it off uh, because it kind of it comes and goes a bit. We were lucky in the first 15 years of the band touring, we were just a duo working with tape, and we were, it was not as loud as a regular band. But... Noise, workplace noise is a problem for everybody. I think bartenders and people who work in discotheques probably have even bigger challenges because they're dealing with loud noise, really loud noise, and a lot of transient noise uh, for six or eight hours. We really just hear the noise for a couple of hours most. But we have these in-ear monitors that are <laughs> they're, like, they're, they're sort of gateway devices to hearing aids, um, but they also block out a lot of the incidental sound and allow you to perform at a lower volume if that is your desire. But I have also noticed that a lot of musicians just use it as a way to almost kind of supersize their volume experience. One thing that is nice about the in-ears is that uh, speaking, if, you, if you're ever feeling a little, a little fatigued, if you turn it up, you can really uh, get your mojo back. <laughs> so if, you're, if you can't see the audience, are you, what's the amount of interaction you're having with your bandmates during the show or does everyone know they're on part and you're kind of like in your own world or do you have to read each other all the time oh we talk we talk to one another sort of on asides pretty frequently it's hard for me and john because we're right up front but a lot of times while john if john is singing a song and we need to cut a song because there's a curfew like at a union in a union venue we will often run up against the thing where we've actually put too many songs into the show I want the show to end a certain way that's, you know, satisfying to the audience. And that means about two, three quarters of the way through the show, we've got to figure out what to cut that is going to get 
the same crescendo. So I'll just be upstage talking to our bass player going like, uh, you know, we've got to cut this. We also have like, we have, we have some hand signals that we do to one another. Um, uh, we, this, th- there's a signal that sort of like a, looks like a kind of like a papal sign. It's like two fingers together. It means skip the next song. It means make the next song the song after. We have one, we have one thing that's, that's actually knitting needles and that just means free improvisation named after the knitting factory in New York City. So if, if somebody starts doing this knitting motion, it just means make some crazy space noise. Another question as a, as a concert goer I've always wondered is, is the entire um, encore planned in advance? Like, does it have nothing to do with how enthusiastic the audience is? Would you ever do an extra encore because the audience is so great? Or is it it's just all, it's all planned and, and you make it seem as though it's, it's spontaneous? This is, a, such a, this is an interesting topic for me because it... It makes me realize how how far away my experience and my thinking on it is from a lot of civilians. I remember I remember doing an interview in in Pennsylvania somewhere with a, a woman, like a college aged young woman. We were talking. We had a very very interesting conversation for twenty minutes. And at at the end of it, like the tour manager came in and just said, like, you know, is this set list good? Can I Xerox this for the show tonight? And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And the, and the woman was like, use a set list? And I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you got to use the set list. And she w- w- looked completely crestfallen. Like, like, she was like, so you don't just, like, play what you feel like you feel? And I realized that, and, and it was really, it, she completely turned. I mean, it was like she had lost all hope in our project. And I did that thing. It's sort of like, you know, like when, like, your mom finds, like, you know, pot. Like, the first thing you say is, like, but everybody smokes pot. Like, I actually, I actually said, no, uh, like, all bands have set lists. It's not, not just us. Like, don't, don't, don't be disappointed in us. Like, everybody uses a set list. Um, I mean, I think even the Grateful Dead had set lists. I don't think there's anybody who doesn't use a set list. That's a part of stage. The encore question is an interesting one. I know... I feel like it is, it's like tipping. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no better answer. As, as, as bad a system as it is, uh, it's hard to think of how it, how, how it just, it, it's evolved to be this way. One thing we figured out at a certain point was that we weren't staying off stage long enough. The, between the getting off stage, you know, we would run off stage and it'd be, 50, you know, 10 seconds would go by and we'd run back on stage and it, it, it wasn't even really an encore. It was just, you know, we just kind of ran off stage at the, near the end of the show. Um, so we would actually time it out, and we all we literally go up back on stage exactly 60 seconds later, which seems, you know, for hundreds of shows, we, that's just what we've always done. We always do two encores, um, which people seem to really appreciate, but it's com- absolutely built into the show. Um, there's a sense of like dynamics to the way we do the encores. We often come back and do an extremely quiet song, which is sort of um, there's a famous Keith Moon uh, expression, which is uh, you know you open and you close, and everything in the middle is filler. So when you finish a show, are you physically wiped? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you can't go to sleep, but you can't really do anything else. What, what do you literally do? You walk off stage. Do you change your clothes? Do you take a shower? Do you what do you do? Uh, yeah, definitely definitely change our clothes and if there's a shower available to take a shower we, we we will but a lot of times we're in clubs that are so so dirty and strange that there's you would you wouldn't want to take a shower you'd get like some kind of 
airborne virus in that shower. We all, you know, we'll get off stage and we'll talk very heatedly about the show, how the show went, and you know, sort of compare notes. and And there's a lot of times there's some pr- pretty strange contrasts. Like people will have, you know, somebody will have a good night and somebody will have a bad night, and it'll be as if you were at doing completely different shows, having different experiences. And usually that's around technical stuff. But um, if there is a problem, it's like some, you know, some something was breaking throughout the show for somebody, and that's just misery. Um, do, do you feel like you need to affirm each other, or, you, or do you want the brutal, honest truth? There's a lot of, there's a lot of brutal honesty, but, it's, um, but yeah, we, we try to... I think, I think the thing is, you know, we're, we're really focused on what we're doing next. Like, it's, it's very much about making things better, and that makes it very unneurotic. Going back to it, so you get off stage, you change clothes, maybe shower. What's the rest of the evening? There's this interval of time. We actually, right as we after we get off stage, Marty and I will often go into the audience and give out stickers for the band, uh, which is again just in the world of like promotes promotion. B- to be able to hand somebody like five stickers means that there will be, uh, they might be giant sticker in all these different places that we are, and it it, it seems very sort of small timey, I guess, but. You know, it is an opportunity to just like kind of give like a bunch of high fives and and just meet the crowd. And I think both Marty and I are like, you know, we're kind of like people pleasers, and it sort of sort of gives us a chance to sort of wind down. And I don't know, it just it just works for us. The Working Podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines, whose new Delta Studio provides more streaming entertainment in the sky, movies, shows, TV, all on your personal devices. Additionally, Delta's long haul fleet not only has more flatbed seats, but more flatbed seats available with direct aisle access. Learn more at Delta.com. Delta, keep climbing. And now back to my interview. I don't imagine this is a problem as much for you as it is for for Maroon 5, but surely there is groupiedom for They Might Be Giants too. What's your policy for dealing with that? We are really unavailable to the outside world, um... It's very difficult to find us on that level. We have met some crazy people uh, who've gone to crazy lengths to track us down, but uh, we have very non-public lives when it comes to like going to checking into hotels, and you're not you're not going to know where we are. Was there ever a stage in your rock life when you were like? It would be awesome to meet all those cute girls who are, you know, those cute college girls. I certainly went with cute college girls to your shows. We were adults when we started the band, started touring. We started. I was twenty eight when we started touring, so we we were already, you know, had adult stuff. It was not like some teen fantasy of 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 uh, being a rock musician. Do you feel that that's something you missed as part of the rock lifestyle, or you just don't care because you're not built for that? Missed getting vd <laughs> uh uh yeah uh i often think about how how strange it is that i don't have any venereal disease um no i mean it's, you know there's a lot of uh, things that are like just weird about about that stuff i don't think you'd really want to hang out with somebody who thought of you that you know in in any light beyond just who you are as a person i think it'd be very very strange after the show uh you guys, you, you don't sleep. We sleep on the bus. We do not go to a hotel um, because we have to travel. The logistics of what we're doing is uh, the economies of being in a touring band. If you can play six nights a week as opposed to five, you have a much, much better chance of of it all staying in the black. 
like losing that that sixth show is really really makes it tough to uh, find profitability. And a lot and a, a lot of bands when they do tour, they actually tour seven nights a week. But because we sing so much, it's we need a little bit of vocal recovery. But we sleep on the bus. What are your requirements for your tour? What, what like what do you need backstage? Do you what are your brown M and M's? Years ago, when Spy Magazine existed. Uh, they would publish people's riders, and one of the most curious riders that we had ended up getting published in Spy Magazine, and it was, it was a clause that asked for clean socks and clean underwear, and it was put in by this fellow named John Grenand, who now is like, he's a, he's, he, he works on Saturday, he's like a stage guy on Saturday Night Live, and we did hundreds of shows with him. He's a really funny guy. He put, basically, he was tour managing us. He put it in the rider as a way to, to sort of start a conversation about... Because the biggest problem you have with a tour writer is that people don't call you back. And it doesn't get set up, and it doesn't happen. And so if you put something ludicrous in your rider, you can basically mark it off and get rid of it. I, w- I found it embarrassing that he did that, but uh, it was done in our name, and it, and it happened. Um, I, don't think we ever, I don't think we ever got any clean underwear. We probably could have used it. We don't have any peculiar things because that stuff you ultimately pay for. I think that's the part that people don't realize is that you artists pay for their own rider. I was talking to somebody who actually was doing a studio session with a very famous uh, female diva the other day. And she had a rider for her studio sessions. And the rider added $1,000 to the cost of the studio session. And I don't think she's ever, I mean, she's in the stratosphere of fame. I don't think she has any notion of how much dough she's just kind of pissing away. And she probably just thinks, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is what everybody gets. You know, here's the champagne that they must love me. There are a lot of false economies or a lot of false notions of uh, what's free in the music biz. So you're 50 what? 54. Do you think you guys can do this until you're 70, 75? That's a really good question. I, I, I like to think we could, we could go for a good long time. I mean, we, we already have, though. I mean, that's the strange thing. Is that I, I do, there are times when I realize like, you know, we've, been, we've been doing this for, for way longer than most, most bands. Yeah, I don't know. Should we? Should we not? It's, it's, I mean, I think that's, that's like what all these legacy acts are kind of wondering is, is it better to just sort of fade out for a long time with the with the rolling stones and this is the ultimate rolling stones question i thought i think it's okay that you know keith richards looks like you know somebody's grandfather and is just like rocking out completely i think that's cool i think that's that's nice um you know obviously we're we sort of fall into a really different place in the rock culture you know people tend to you know think of us as like nice guys so it's not it doesn't suit us being like pirates i mean one thing that about the the rolling stones is they've sort of transitioned into a pirate ship kind of thing i don't know it's it's a, it's a good question but i don't know the answer i mean we you know we don't have any other we don't have any transferable skills well you don't have to tour though you because you can produce and you can make music without it without the physical act of touring i think you're supposed to i think officially this is a point of interview where we're saying, well, we're working on a Broadway show, but we're not. <laughs> uh, no, we don't really have a plan B. I think, I think the, the main thing is, to, is for us, if we're going to keep performing, is that we find ways to keep it interesting 
and a challenge for us, and and also get to more. Pl- I would like to, you know, I would love to get back to Japan. I would love to get. I would love to just see more kinds of audiences and just do. As long as you keep it interesting, I think it, it's fine. Do you ever get tired of looking at the audience and looking and looking at people like me, like you know, guy, white guys in their forties and fifties? Well, fortunately, you know, our audience we have sort of a a little bit of a Dorian Gray situation, which is that our audience often is shockingly young. Um, I mean, it's it's older than college age now, but I'm I'm actually I often am surprised at how how young the crowd is. It's still it's really concert going people, concert age people. So um, it's a self selected group, like you know. People, people like us, we don't, we don't go to shows. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Working. On the next show, I'm going to talk to Anne Serrano McLean, a perfumer, or as they call them in the trade, a nose. She makes perfume. What's that like? I'll talk to her.